Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome to another episode of The Europhile. We have a great show for you today. First, we are going to discuss France's recent pension reform, which sparked massive protests after President Emmanuel Macron circumvented a parliamentary vote to pass the reform. Then we will talk about the e-fuels controversy, which roiled the EU Council summit. And finally, we will talk about the elections in Finland and Bulgaria, which will be relevant both for Ukraine and the EU's democratic resilience. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, so let's kick it off by talking about the issue that is really dominating European politics right now, and it's in Paris or all of France, and that's Emmanuel Macron's pension reform scheme. Maybe you can break it down for us. Sure. You're correct to say it's not just in Paris, although I think the images out of Paris are really the ones that are in the news, but it's happening everywhere. I'm going to summarize it because it's complicated. We can go into a lot of details, but what I think is important for people to know is one, This is not his first attempt to reform pensions. He had started in 2020 in his first mandate, and by him I mean Emmanuel Macron. And then COVID put a pin in that, like it put a pin in a lot of things. And now he's trying to deliver on this in his second and last mandate. It's not a super popular reform, even though from what we see in polling, the French understand there's a need to do something about the pension system for its sustainability in the long term. And in short, what the reform does is to move the legal age of retirement from 62 to 64 years old by 2030. That requires people to work for 43 years, which is up from 42 right now, to receive a full pension. This is important. You can retire earlier if you elect to do so, but your pension is docked. There's a lot of calculations that go into that. Right. I think that's actually kind of important because I think the way the news coverage of this has been, look at those lazy French, 62 to 64. Are you kidding me? And there's there's some truth there, but there is also an element of you got to clock the 40 years. You start at 25, that means 65. Or if you start at 30, that means 70. So it's not necessarily 62's earliest, but yes. not many people are actually hitting retirement right then. Yes, and I'm glad you raised that because I think there's some myth dispelling or addressing some stereotype that we need to do. Some of these generalizations are just not very helpful in the debate. In my mind, one is that it's 62 at the earliest for a lot of people to get the full pension, although some people can retire earlier for, quote unquote, hardship labor, things that were very uh, manual labor. Some economists disagree with the government's projections and the shape of the reform. So it's not super clear cut if this really addresses the sustainability of the system, but the government is trying the best it can. And at the same time, Macron made no secret of his plan to do this. He campaigned on this in 2017. He campaigned on this in 2022. And he's a policy guy. He's You could ask questions about his political instincts, but he's a policy guy. So this was not a secret. And I think we knew it was, it was going to happen. So I just thought it was important for us to address this, especially this label of lazy French. Like, there's a reason people are out on the streets. I also think it's important to remember it's about the pension reform, but it's also about the debate that they're having on inflation, on cost of living, on being able to retire while still having enough life left to enjoy, which is a very French thing, but I don't think you can fault them for that. I kind of understand this impulse. So I think it was important to get to get some of this, some of this out of the way. Right. In the critique of Macron and those that are opposed to the pension reform, there's a French way of life. 
They don't want to see moving toward what they see sort of see as no holds barred sort of U.S. style capitalism with weak social safety nets. And so what the protests have really tapped into is an opposition, not just to this policy, but a broader kind of critique of Macron. And I think part of the reason when we got here, and I think the broader political context is important, where if we remember back to the French election, Macron, he won the presidency, but there was a strong performance both on the far right with Marie Le Pen, but also on the left with Mélenchon doing quite well in the first round of voting, getting above 20%. And then when that translated into the parliamentary elections, because the French decided to have their presidential election and then immediately followed by their parliamentary election, most of the time in French history, the president usually has, almost always, the parliament is controlled by the party of the president. Often, yes. In this case, that was not did not happen. So it's a minority government. And so hence to pass this, which was key part of Macron's campaign, he had to sort of circumvent the parliament. Yes. And that's that's the political aspect of this whole debate is he couldn't get a parliamentary majority in the National Assembly. The Senate is another thing because political makeup of the Senate, just the upper house is different than the lower house. But he couldn't get a majority in the Assembly, which is why he passed this. Well, not him, but his prime minister, Elisabeth Bonn, passed this through an article of the Constitution basically akin to an executive order. And that is what triggered additional protests. There would have been protests, I think, from some of the unions. But if it had passed in a regular legislative process, it would have looked different. I believe that. The interesting thing for me is I think Macron's party was relying on right-wing votes for this from Les Républicains, who had campaigned on this in 2022 as well, except they went for 65 and not 64 years old. But for that vote... A lot of them just didn't show up, which is kind of interesting. That also tells you a lot about the fragmented political landscape of France. So he just couldn't get this majority, which on the one hand is less democratic. You could argue triggered those protests. There's going to be political backlash. On the other, from his point of view, he can't run again. This is his last mandate. So I, you could understand why he just felt like it's time. A lot of the things he did even in his first mandate were about reforming the French economy in a way that he sees is setting up the country for longer-term economic sustainability. Right. And the purpose of this reform is to make France more economically competitive, reduce some of the budgetary pressures caused by the pension scheme to save the government money. And so I think there's a hope on his part that this is the sort of tough economic reform that everyone hates, but when it's done, it'll be long lasting. And actually, people are going to look back and say, well, that was, you know, uh, that helped, you know, move France, uh, the French economy forward. The last thing I want to mention on the provision that he used or his government used to pass this thing is that the opposition always complains about this thing called 49.3, except sometimes when they're in power, they use it too. This has been used 100 times since it was created in 1958. It's been used quite a few times, about 10% of that, since this government has been in place. Uh, Elizabeth Bonn became prime minister last May in 2022. But before that, Macron had only used it once uh, to push, actually, the first part of the pension reform in 2020. Sure, the opposition is decrying the use of this provision, but François Hollande used it. His predecessors have used it a lot. Well, maybe let's talk a little bit about the political fallout, because that, I think, is now of big concern. Everyone's seeing images of of trash piling in the streets. Now we're seeing images of massive protests. The King of England had to postpone his, his trip to Paris, his first trip abroad. 
And I think there's concern that this will sort of lead to a new Gilets jaunes or Yellow Jackets protest movement. And if, to remind the listeners, that was, uh, was it 2019, uh, 2020? God, now, pre-COVID. What is it was time? Pre, it was definitely pre-COVID. It was, it was pre-COVID. Yeah, it was pre-COVID, where efforts by the French government, by Macron, on climate, then led to a response. And then that led to this bizarre sort of anarchist protest movement, anarchist is probably not the right word, <laughs> yeah. but just from all sorts of the political spectrum, protesting the government endlessly, and it sort of never ended and led to the sense of disarray and chaos uh, within France. It was really upsetting to many Parisians and others. And I think there's concern that we'll just have endless protests in, in France. Do you, is that, do you think, the concern now? That is a concern. I don't know if it will be borne out in reality. It to me, it'll hinge on one union in particular, the, mar the more moderate one. The further left unions are going to be out there for a long time. But this one in particular, I think the government is going to be watching closely to see if they're more open to dialogue. And that means they'll call for their supporters to stop protesting. At the same time, it'll also depend on the disruption that's been happening and the impact it has on people because transportation has been significantly affected. You mentioned trash collection. Gas deliveries to gas stations have been seriously impacted as well. There are shortages in parts of the west of the country. I mean, Le Louvre is closed today. So all these tourists must be really frustrated. I think it's going to depend on how disruptive the protests continue to be. I do think what makes the concern valid is that there's a wide range of people. There's multiple segments of the population protesting right now. It's not just people who are arriving at their pension or are, I don't know, 10 years away from it. It's a lot of very young people as well, because there's this solidarity between generations. And if that doesn't go away, I, I would be concerned for for the government. But earlier, you also mentioned political fallout. I think that's even though Macron cannot run again, one thing that is potentially problematic for more moderate forces and anybody else in Europe or in the United States who is watching for some of these not moderate forces taking over in France is this kind of protest and this kind of reform allows someone like Marine Le Pen to once again elevate herself as a defender of the people. She campaigned in 2017 and 2022 on keeping retirement age where it is. You can argue whether it's sustainable or not, but that continues to put her as this defender of the little people, of the working class, etc. I'm sure we'll see Mélenchon and others do the same thing. So this isn't good because even if Macron can't run, he has a whole party. And he's letting a lot of these representatives deal with that fallout. And I think the political backlash for them is going to follow them if he can't and he and his prime minister cannot tamp some of yeah, this. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that you look at the implications of Macron sort of blowing up the French political scene when he first came on the stage as, as you know, he's the finance minister and the Hollande uh, government and created his own party. And so he has controlled the center. So he sometimes is center right. You know, this is definitely a more center right initiative. Sometimes he's more center left. And so by occupying the center, what he's done is made the political opposition on more of the wings, on more of the far left and more of the far right. And so you see this kind of joining of populist uh, opposition from both the left and the right against him. And it's sort of an unstable politics right now in, in France and to see how that moves forward, because, you know, this should have been the initiative probably of a center right political party that, you know, wins an election. And then this is the, the issue they push forward. Speaking of somewhat unstable political coalitions, I thought maybe we'll pivot now to talk about what happened at the European Council Summit 
Sweden has the EU presidency. This was not supposed to be a summit where e-fuels were, were really on the agenda, but suddenly a, a major issue emerged over the EU's effort to ban uh, gas-powered vehicles, to require all vehicles to be electric vehicles. By 2035. By 2035, so not tomorrow, so there's a lot of time. But Germany really threw up the red flag and, and put through a wrench in the gears, pun intended, by saying that suddenly they wouldn't support this. Now, this is a government that is led by the SPD, which has you know, made climate a priority. There's also the Green Party, which is a prominent part of the coalition. And, and then there's the Free Democrats, the FDP, the more libertarian side, which is part of this coalition, kind of the, the odd party in the coalition in the sense that this is really, I think, of their initiative. This is from the finance minister, Christian Lindner. It really kind of harkens back uh, to understand what's going on here. I actually think folks, we're going to give ourselves a plug. Listen to the interview that we did with Jan-Philippe Albrecht of the Heinrich Boll Foundation, where he kind of talked about the outcome of a Berlin election, how, you know, what was happening in the coalition. And there in the, that election, you saw the FDP do really badly. Now you would think, that in a party does badly, they lose their influence in the coalition, but sort of the opposite has happened, where I think they are trying to assert themselves more and said, we're not going to support getting rid of the internal combustion engine. German car makers have their back, but they're pushing now e-fuels. I can't make a decision whether e-fuels are going to be a thing. This caused a lot of discomfort within uh, the EU over the last week. Yeah. For the FDP, what I think what's interesting is the question that comes to mind for me is, do they think by doing this, they are supporting their core constituency and therefore potentially regaining votes in Germany? That's a question I can't answer right now. I think polling is a better answer for this. At the EU level, it's a huge wrench in the plan. One, because on the on the practical aspect, these are reforms and this is a transition plan that has been worked on for years it comes on the heels of this transatlantic debates that we just had that you and I talked about quite a bit on making this transition work and making sure that it happens smoothly, but definitively away from fossil fuels. So to have this pop up from the country that everybody always talks about as one of the political leaders of Europe and the engine of European reform is kind of a slap in the face, especially because of the way they did it. Kind of came out on toward the end of this agreement being signed. Felt like the kind of hostage politics that we've seen from smaller member states that shall remain unnamed. On the political front, I thought it was uh, not a welcome. Yeah, and I think from a, a Washington perspective, like why does this matter? I mean, both it matters from a climate end, but from the larger European politics, it's an example where Germany isn't leading Europe, right? What is happening once again is... Germany has this complicated coalition, and I think this is where Chancellor Schultz is sort of letting the FDP kind of dictate a lot of where they're going a bit on Europe. And that's, I think, going to be problematic, particularly when it comes to the need to renegotiate the Stability and Growth Pact. That's basically, you know, what your budget deficit can be within the EU, potentially additional funding for initiatives. We're seeing EU security funds. There's more money being allocated for things like ammunition that we've been calling for. But then where's that money coming from? And you have an FTP, the party of the FTP, that's been opposed to more funding for the EU. And Schultz is sort of drifting around. And I, I, you know, everyone has their own internal politics. It probably makes a lot of sense internally, politically. But what we're not seeing is Germany really lead on the European stage. And I think that's an unfortunate sign leading to some rifts between the French and, and Germans and, and others. Yeah. And I think that's also the age old dynamic 
or opposition between what feels like catering to short-term interests. Same as you, I don't know enough about those e-fuels to understand whether it is a positive part of the transition. But it feels like Germany is latching on to its legacy business and the car industry, because it's a huge part of their economy, which is understandable. But are they sacrificing an economic transition and technology transition to cater to those interests. That's something that remains to be seen. And that's, once again, very complicated political yeah. dynamics. At the very least, there's a number of annoyed people in the EU. They're like, why didn't you raise this when we were talking about this? But maybe we'll transition now to talk about two elections that are forthcoming in Finland and Bulgaria. Maybe we'll start with Finland. I don't know if it will necessarily change the direction of Finnish policy toward NATO or Ukraine, but it's an interesting, it's an election that I think a lot of people are watching. Sure. I think a lot of people have become acquainted with Sanna Marin, the prime minister of Finland. She is a woman. She is young. She There are some pretty funny memes on the internet of her walking next to Spanish prime minister Pedro Sanchez. <laughs> Both are fairly good looking people. I think we can say that. So and they're on the younger it's side. It's an objective of, statement. Yeah, <laughs> but they're on the younger side of European leaders. So I think that's some of the prominence that she has come into comes comes from that. And she's been Incredibly impressive, I yes, think, in response to the war. I was just going to say, yeah. and for her competence as yeah. well. Let me be clear here. And it's also, I think, as a social democrat, being so strong in support of Ukraine has really drawn a lot of international attention. Um, and that has given her sort of a real international prominence. Yes. Now, the problem she's running into now is an erosion in the public support of her political party. Her party, the Social Democratic Party, is tied for second place right now, and they are behind a more right-wing, I would say, conservative uh, national coalition party, which is right now slated to become the biggest group in parliament. We should also say that this election is taking place on April 2nd, next Sunday, same as Bulgaria. The part that is going to be tricky for whoever wins this election is it's unlikely one is going to have a full majority. It's going to be a coalition government. We've seen across Europe, it's becoming more difficult for a lot of leading parties to form those coalitions because with the fragmentation, we've also seen polarization. So you have more parties who agree on less that then have to form a coalition together. So those talks will probably take a long time. It's possible that the prime minister's party will be in this coalition. It depends on the constellation of parties coming out of the election. But one thing that is potentially worrying or worrying for me and I'm keeping my eye on it is the nationalist Finns party is the other party that's tied for second place. We've seen them on the scene for a few years now, but they have continued to ride on this austerity message, also on strong anti-immigration message, which is a tricky time for that. I don't know exactly if they have started turning that message towards Ukrainian refugees. But these days, you never know. I mean, we've seen in Slovakia, for example, support for Ukrainian refugees is, is going down. The other thing I find interesting is popular support for some of the government's decisions recently is high. Marine's response to the war in Ukraine, people are widely satisfied with how she managed this crisis. Same thing with the sanctions and financial aid to Ukraine. But it seems to me this race is turning more on the domestic challenges on public spending and government finances. Yeah. And, and I think if we look at Sweden next door, where, you know, there you actually had a really popular prime minister from the Social Democrats that then got 
was the largest party, but just felt just short of coalition. And it was really the revival of right-wing Swedish Democrats that helped put a conservative coalition over the line in terms of largest support. And I think when it comes to Finland, look, there's going to be, I think, strong support for Ukraine, no matter what, no matter who wins, and the effort to join NATO. This is partly why I think it was good, important that it's social Democrats that were pushing for that. Um, so, so that will all remain. I think the, the potential issue I see is with a conservative, austerity-minded government, probably very skeptical of additional EU spending, EU funding. And one of the things that we're looking at when we look ahead to potential Ukraine membership, whether it's you know more EU defense spending, as we just mentioned, whether it's EU clean transition, there's going to be a need for the EU to have resources. And you know Finland, and it wasn't as if the Sanna Marin and her government was pro a lot of EU spending. They were oftentimes an obstacle and, and would can, were part of the frugal states that that sort of got in the way of a lot of EU initiatives. And you can argue for or against that, but I think there will be a clear skepticism of additional EU funding, which then could be problematic for Ukraine in, in, in many respects. So that's, I think, something to watch out for. But then there's also going to be an election further south in Bulgaria. And the Bulgarian political landscape has been quite sort of I don't know if you want to say unstable, but it is. Uh, I think that's fair. I, unstable. Let's I go with unstable. Fair. Maybe you could break down what we're looking at in in Bulgaria. Yes. Just to give you a measure of why I do think it's fair to stay unstable is that in the last two years, they've had five snap elections. That counts as unstable. None of which have yielded a coalition that has stuck around. So, you know, that's why I'm saying that. It's just it's had a caretaker government for for a while. This came on the heels of a longstanding prime minister, Boyko Borisov, who faced a range of allegations of corruption. His party as well ties to oligarchs. There was some pictures that emerged a couple years ago of him with a gun and cash around his bed. Anyway, maintains that it was staged. Yes, exactly. But his party, GERB, G-E-R-B, has been at the heart of several high-profile corruption scandals that sparked really large protests, actually, against the government in, in 2020. Somehow, since then, this party has come back to the top of the polls to be tied with another party or now an alliance of two pro-EU and anti-corruption parties. And they're both neck and neck at around 25% of polling. To me, that's both mind-boggling and also familiar. In multiple EU countries, we've seen people forget very fast within a couple years that this party was at the heart of all of these allegations. Um, The tricky piece, similar to Finland, is regardless of who wins, it's going to be a challenge to see who they can form a coalition with because 25%, I don't have to teach you math, is not quite enough in a parliament to get a government of your own. And the next two parties are around 13%. One is a far-right party and one is a center-right but uh, ethnic Turkish party that has faced a lot of corruption scandals as well, including among its its leadership ranks. So it's unclear to me, regardless of who wins at the top, how they would form a coalition. Most of those la- large parties agree on things related to Ukraine, for example, military support. But when it comes to any other kind of reform, they disagree. And the reason this matters is... 
Bulgaria remains the poorest EU country to this day. And similar to Romania, when it came into EU membership, it was placed under what they call a cooperation verification mechanism for its rule of law, judicial reforms, because it was not satisfactory. But they wanted to be able to say, yes, you can be an EU member. It's like you're in, but you're suspect. And we're going to monitor you. And you don't have necessarily all the same rights and provisions. The freedom of movement and other things are, are checked. Correct. And Bulgaria hasn't really enacted sufficient reforms to get out of this verification mechanism to this day. I mean, there are corruption scandals coming out fairly often. So it'll be a really interesting election for those reasons. Yeah. And I think why this I think this matters in a for a number of respects. One, there's Ukraine. And I think it's important to recognize that while Bulgaria has not sort of been very open about what it's been providing, there have been really important stories noting you know, some of the significant aid Bulgaria has been providing to Ukraine. It also relates to Ukraine in the sense that part of the reticence for letting Ukraine become a member of the EU sort of very quickly is that a lot of EU member states look at a country like Bulgaria, where there was an expectation that, you know, this was the mid mid aughts. There was a lot of optimism about the future trajectory of the EU that, you know, if countries got in their their path towards uh, democratization and economic strengthening would continue. And that's been true for a lot of states. And I think probably relatively true for Bulgaria. But once you become a member, the EU loses some of its leverage. And so the progress that I think the EU was expecting to see on corruption has not necessarily been there. And so when you think about putting Ukraine on the fast track, I think the Bulgaria raises some some of those concerns about, well, that's their EU membership is no once you're in, no guarantee of resolving those previous issues. And to be fair, some of those concerns about Bulgaria from, let's say, some countries in Western Europe are not always fair. Some are based in slight bouts of xenophobia, but there are other aspects that are fair. And Ukraine presents similar symptoms, let's say, to Bulgaria when it comes to connections with oligarchs and Russian influence in the economic sphere are very deeply rooted. Ukraine will obviously come out of this with a different economic picture and ties to Russia. But Bulgaria has remained plagued with those issues and has not done enough to address it. The president, Ruman Radev, remains vocally opposed to sending more weapons to Ukraine. So there's a lot that can change there. And just to finalize on the importance of this country in this election is this is a strategic location for NATO right on the Black Sea. Indeed, it is a strategic location. The Black Sea is a major concern. But it's also that Bulgaria is not just in NATO, but the EU. And when we think about potential weak points for the alliance, well, we tend to go to Hungary and Hungary's ties, Viktor Orban's ties to the Kremlin. And you can see how an election there can lead to the undermining of the rule of law, undermining of democracy, the weakening of support for NATO and the EU and causing a real problem. Well, I think you have to look at this election in Bulgaria as raising some of those similar concerns. We're probably a, a long way away from that being you know, equivalent. But this is one of the challenges where the EU, when you have unanimity at the European Council and all 27 members have to get in support of sanctions and other issues. That an election goes one way in one member state can throw a wrench in a lot of the gears of how the EU functions. So we'll be watching. We'll be watching elections in Bulgaria, elections in Finland, and hopefully we'll see some return to normalcy in, in, in France. Fingers crossed. But I did want to give an honorable mention to presidential runoff elections that are taking place in Montenegro as well. The Balkans, always forgotten, you know. 
the longstanding president there, Dukanovich, has been on the political stage since the independence of the country. I think that's what matters is there's a new opponent, Yakov Milatovic, who has emerged as a pro-European candidate. And this is the first time in a while that we could see someone who's been called a political dinosaur in Montenegro, see his star, his political star fading. He's faced accusations of corruption and cronyism. And the status quo has just not been positive for Montenegro when it comes to movement on enlargement. So that's why I wanted to put out put it out there also because I think across all three elections, we see three main implications. One is the pro-EU stance of the incoming governments. You've mentioned this. Two is continued support for Ukraine. And three is preliminary conclusions that we could draw from the results on the war's impact on the political dynamics in Europe. So we'll be watching all three of those elections for the reasons that we have mentioned. We'll be watching in France and some of the strikes that are emerging uh, across Europe these days. And that's it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which is really great. And it covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Our thanks to our producer, Michael Kohler, and to Sissy Martinez and Otto Svensson for coordinating and researching this episode. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Europhile. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. For more expert analysis on other foreign policy topics, visit csis.org slash podcasts.